preparing to launch humans from Florida and using radio to observe the universe. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. In a little over a week, SpaceX will attempt to launch two NASA astronauts to the International Space Station from Florida, the first human launch from the United States in nearly a decade. Since the start of NASA's commercial crew program, the Kennedy Space Center has worked to support the next chapter of human launches. We'll speak with Center Director Bob Cabana about the transition to support commercial crew partners SpaceX and Boeing, and what's in store for astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley as they make their final preparations for flight from Florida. Then, a giant radio dish in Puerto Rico is observing our universe. The Arecibo Observatory is a radio telescope unlocking all sorts of secrets in the cosmos. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, our expert physicists explain what radio astronomy is and how Arecibo is helping scientists see deeper into our universe. That's just ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley are on their way to the Kennedy Space Center, the last stop before blasting into space on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket. The mission is a critical test for NASA's commercial crew program, seeking to end a nearly decade-long reliance on the Russian space agencies for rides to the station. The duo are making final preparations at KSC before launching in SpaceX's Crew Dragon. NASA will conduct a final flight readiness review this week ahead of the scheduled launch May 27th at 4.32 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to follow us on Facebook for a live stream of the launch next week. Just search for Are We There Yet? podcast and stay connected with the latest space news stories. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Bob and Doug's launch is just a little over a week away, but preparations for this milestone mission have been years in the making. NASA's Kennedy Space Center will take center stage for the flight, and it's been transitioning to support the relaunch of astronauts by commercial partners. Kennedy Space Center Director Bob Cabana is no stranger to spaceflight. He's flown on four space shuttle missions. Cabana has served as KSC's director since 2008, and he joins us to talk about just how the center transitioned to support new missions and the historical context of this milestone mission. Bob Cabana, thanks for speaking with us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Brendan. Exciting times on the Space Coast. It really is exciting times, Bob, and this is kind of a story that's been uh, quite a few years in the making. Let's go back, and can you tell me when the Kennedy Space Center started thinking about or, or preparing to host uh, these commercial crew launches? We started uh, planning our transition uh, back when I first got to the Kennedy Space Center, and the shuttle program was coming to an end. Uh, we knew that we had to uh, start preparing for the future, that the shuttle program was going to end, and uh, we had to transform as a space center. But the, uh, the commercial crew program, you know, was a follow-on to uh, the CRS missions, the commercial cargo to the uh, International Space Station. As the shuttle program ended, we had to have another way of getting our crews up there, and the logical flow was to uh, develop commercial crew. And so that back in, uh, you know, the 2010 timeframe is when uh, when we really got started on this. And Bob, what were some of the changes um, that were made at the center to accommodate these new vehicles and also to accommodate 
another batch of, of astronauts that would be kind of stepping through the Kennedy Space Center on their way to space? Well, first off, you know, the commercial crew program, although it's resident here at uh, KSC with the uh, program office, it, it's a partnership with the other NASA centers. And if you look at the how the percentages lay out, it, it's about 50-50 between uh, the Kennedy Space Center and the uh, Johnson Space Center in Houston. But we also have support from the Marshall Space Flight Center up in Huntsville, Alabama, so uh, as well as other uh, centers uh, supporting in a technical way. So really, this is an across-the-board program. But I think, you know, if you look at changes just here at KSC, you know, they're a derivative of the multi-user spaceport that we developed. Much of what we did in developing this multi-user spaceport enabled commercial crew operations. For example, launch pad 39A, uh, we signed the agreement uh, for SpaceX to maintain and operate that pad, a 20-year uh, use agreement, back in uh, July of 2014, so uh, six years ago now. And uh, they had their first launch off it in, uh, in January of 2017, and have had uh, many successful launches off it uh, since then. Uh, from a commercial crew point of view, uh, launching DM-1 off that uh, pad last year, and uh, earlier this year, launching the uh, in-flight abort test those were all critical milestones getting ready for this crewed flight that's coming up here uh, next week. <clears throat> and then if you look at uh, the relationship that we have with uh, Boeing, our other commercial crew partner, they're operating out of a former shuttle processing facility and engine shop uh, in partnership with the state of Florida through uh, Space Florida, acquiring that facility and then leasing it to Boeing. And they're building the CST-100 uh, crew vehicle there. You know, so again, those facilities that enable commercial crew would not have been available had we not uh, gone through the transition that we did. So those facilities were uh, transformed to support the SpaceX vehicle and the Boeing vehicle. Uh, 39A, we, we've seen the hardware on 39A, as you mentioned, launching the DM-1 last year. Uh, but this would be the first time that the astronauts will be passing through these facilities. What's in store for Bob and Doug when, when they're staying at the Kennedy Space Center ahead of their launch? Well, first off, Brendan, it's not the first time they're going to pass through these facilities because they've been training and practicing. And they've already gone through a, uh, a dry count simulated launch a couple of weeks ago. So for them, just as we did during shuttle, we had what we called the uh, uh, CIT, Crew Equipment Interface Test, and, uh, and we did a, uh, a launch count uh, without actually uh, launching, just so that we were familiar with uh, everything that was going to transpire on launch day. Bob and Doug are already in quarantine, and they're going to show up down here at the Cape a week before launch, and they'll go into quarantine in uh, crew quarters at the uh, Kennedy Space Center just as they did uh, when they flew aboard the shuttle. So they're very familiar with the environment that they're going into and uh, what's expected of them uh, while they're down here. In many ways, it's gonna be very similar to, uh, to a shuttle launch. On, on launch day, they'll get up and they'll, they'll have their crew breakfast or lunch and uh, they'll go off down to the suit room and get suited up, although they're gonna get into some different suits this time. And they'll, they'll head out of the uh, crew quarters in the uh, ONC building and instead of getting on the Astro van, they're going to be riding in Teslas out to the uh, to the launch pad. And uh, as they go through all of this, it's something that both of them had done before 
when they flew aboard the shuttle. So it's different, but in many ways it's going to feel uh, familiar to them. Uh, folks watching uh, from the outside are going to see something that's very similar to when we flew uh, shuttle crews or any astronauts into space, even going back to the Apollo program. Bob Cabana, you have also been through those facilities as an astronaut yourself. I'm wondering if thinking about Bob and Doug and that familiarity that they have through those facilities, do you think that that helps with with the mission overall? Is that one less thing that they have to be anxious about or or one new thing that they have to mentally prepare for? Oh, yeah, I I definitely think that they're going to derive some uh, satisfaction from having uh, been there and done that before. Uh, That always helps. You know, uh, anytime we can gain more knowledge or be comfortable in the environment that we're in, it helps us uh, perform better. Uh, still, it's a new vehicle, and uh, I'm sure that they can't wait to get out there. I mean, I, I envy Bob and Doug, especially, you know, uh, Doug as a, as a test pilot, you know, having uh, been at Pax River, having uh, flown uh, new vehicles, having done these sort of things, to be able to fly a, a new space for the first time as the the commander. That's pretty cool. Bob Cabana, as you mentioned, this launch is happening in the midst of a global pandemic, but this is an essential mission. How have concerns over coronavirus shaped the way Kennedy Space Center is preparing for this launch? Well, uh, first off, the Kennedy Space Center has done an extremely good job of uh, following all the uh, guidelines that we've gotten from the CDC and the White House and OMB and NASA headquarters and uh, we've managed to uh, continue to do essential work without uh, anyone getting sick at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, in fact, there, there, we've only had two cases of the virus in our workforce, and both of them it was uh, while they were not working at KSC uh, due to outside uh, influences. So I think our goal has, to been, has been to ensure that we provide the safest environment possible for our employees that have to come on site and work. We've increased uh, cleaning uh, in various areas. We've set out rules. Everybody's following CDC guidelines. Um, You know, we've got hand sanitizers spread out all over. Um, Proper uh, personnel protective equipment is available. Masks are available when needed. And we are managing to get the critical work done that needs to be done. I also have to compliment the team uh, tremendously. Those folks that are teleworking uh, from home, uh, the effort they are putting in uh, to keep everything on track and keep us moving forward. You know, I I am convinced we are gonna beat this uh, coronavirus. Our our nation is amazing. Uh, We're gonna conquer this. We're gonna rise above it and continue to do great things. But I want you to know also that having this virus in the area has not kept us from doing that mission essential work that we need to uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, uh, preparing for commercial crew, uh, doing what's required to make this flight happen, keeping the uh, Mars 2020 uh, mission on track with the uh, Perseverance rover. So I, I, uh, I really compliment my team on the efforts that they are putting forth to ensure that we meet uh, CDC guidelines and uh, provide that safe work environment and adhere to all the rules. Yeah, as you mentioned, Bob, this is a very busy year for Kennedy Space Center, not only for the, the human launches with a commercial crew, but as you mentioned, the, the Mars Perseverance rover. And, and yet, despite all of these challenges, these things are still moving forward. 
and it kind of reminds me a bit of the resiliency of NASA when, when challenges are, are put before them, um, the smart folks there are able to overcome them. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about how, you know, past experiences throughout the agency have, have kind of helped make you a resilient workforce and, and uh, able to overcome these, these obstacles. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, Brendan. Uh, the NASA team is absolutely amazing. Contractors and civil servants uh, in the face of any, uh, you know, challenge, uh, they come together and uh, rise above it. You know, th- this isn't our first rodeo here at the Kennedy Space Center. If I look back on the, the hurricanes that we've had to deal with in the past few years, um, the uh, the government shutdowns, uh, we know what is required and uh, we, we continue to get the job done. So I think it's, it's a testament to the workforce. It's a testament to... Uh, having plans in place to be able to deal with uh, contingencies like this. But um, it, it helps having a, an awesome leadership team in place at the Kennedy Space Center. I, I really have to compliment my, uh, my leadership team and uh, the support they provide for the folks that work for them and the knowledge that they have. Uh, I, I couldn't be more pleased with what we're doing. And that, that goes across the board for all of NASA. You know, I, I just, uh, we, we have an amazing team. We haven't been... Uh, number one on the uh, government, uh, on the employee viewpoint survey all these years uh, for no reason. It's, it's because of the, uh, the amazing team and the mission that we have. I know NASA always has contingency plans and redundancy built into their systems for safety, but was it was a global pandemic? Did you have a plan for this before or, or are you, are you improving? There, there is a, a contingency plan for uh, for global pandemics. We had to dust it off and take a look at it, but uh, no, it, it's um, it, we we plan for everything. That that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> Bob Cabana, the, the Kennedy Space Center has hosted many historic moments in spaceflight history: the Apollo missions, the assembly of the ISS, the launch of the Hubble, just to name a few. And this is yet another historic moment happening from KSC. I want to ask you about the significance of this launch, but but I want to get it from two different perspectives from you. I'd like to hear your perspective as the center's director, uh, but also through the eyes of a former astronaut. What does this moment mean uh, in the history of human spaceflight? Well, it's a, it's a transition for one thing. Uh, this is a, a whole new way of uh, procuring and providing um, vehicles to fly humans to space. And uh, I think it's we're setting off into a new era of human spaceflight with these commercial providers. Uh, this is our future. And I, I just couldn't be more pleased with how it's turning out. Um, I, I have to admit, uh, I was when we flew that last shuttle flight, when uh, Fergie brought Atlantis home back in July of 2011, it, it was pretty sad times. And uh, I sure didn't want to leave uh, being KSC's center director without us having a a way to, to fly to space. And uh, it's, I've, I'm really uh, pleased that I've been able to hang on and uh, still be the Kennedy Space Center director as we now have a, uh, a U.S. capability to fly U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station on a U.S. rocket from right here at the, at the Kennedy Space Center. It, it's, a, it's a very important milestone to me as the, uh, as the Kennedy Center director. And I'd also like to say that as an astronaut, it means a lot to me. One of the differences, you know, if you look back, this isn't the first time uh, since Alan Shepard flew 
his suborbital flight back in um, May of 1961, that we have been without access to space for American astronauts. We had a six-year gap between the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975 and the first flight of the space shuttle in uh, 1981. Uh, the difference is, and obviously we've gone nine years this time, which is uh, quite a bit longer, but in spite of that, we have still been flying in space. We have had a permanent presence up on the International Space Station since October of 2000. So, you know, for 20 years, we have had U.S. astronauts in space, and we have continued to learn, to do science, to gain the knowledge that we need for that next step, and that's establishing a presence in our solar system beyond our home planet, to be able to return to the moon, to put the, the next man and first woman on the moon in 2024, to uh, eventually be able to get on to Mars. So even though we haven't had access, we've been continuing to do what we need to do to gain the knowledge to grow and expand uh, beyond planet Earth. But now, now we've got hopefully in the not too distant future two commercial uh, spacecraft that can fly humans to space. And uh, with SLS and Orion coming along, we're gonna have a deep space capability uh, flying a test flight, hopefully, uh, you know, next year with SLS and Orion and uh, getting ready for the crewed flight there. So it, it's just, it's a whole lot been going on and to see it all come to fruition, to see it happening, to be able to uh, know that we've accomplished that, it means a lot to me. Obviously, this is a historic moment as as we spoke, but because of these coronavirus concerns, there won't be, you know, many people out lining the coast watching this or or even, you know, viewing it from the Kennedy Space Center. Do you think that takes away from the significance of this moment, Bob? No, it, it is extremely significant. And there, there's going to be folks watching it. And uh, we're going to have a huge uh, virtual presence uh, watching it. If we do this right, we can get more folks watching it than we would have just by folks being here in person. So I don't think it takes away from it at all. And I'm sure there are going to be folks that are going to be outdoors uh, watching as those guys uh, lift off into space. Uh, I uh, absolutely think it's going to be a, a, a monumental moment for uh, for all of us as we uh, see, you know, the first flight of a, a new spacecraft with crew on board. And finally, Bob Cabana, what's next? This is this is the first flight of many in, in a new chapter of human space exploration. Uh, what are you most excited about uh, that's coming up on the horizon? <laughs> well, absolutely. I'm excited about that uh, Perseverance rover going to Mars with a helicopter on board. That's that's going to be awesome when that gets there. And I want to see a successful launch this July, uh, getting that off. Uh, obviously, you know, the big thing, once we have established two commercial crew vehicles flying crews to space, is going to be getting that SLS rocket launched with Orion on it. And uh, that is going to be something else. Uh, I can't wait for it to complete its testing at the Stennis Space Center in Mississippi and get down here to the Cape. Uh, we're going to be ready for it. We've got the launch pad ready. Uh, we're doing some final tweaks on the mobile launcher. The vehicle assembly building's ready. All the supporting facilities are ready. We're going to have uh, booster segments uh, arriving here in the uh, not-too-distant future. The Orion spacecraft had an awesome test. Uh, campaign up at the Plumbrook facility at the Glenn Research Center in Ohio, and it's back in the uh, ONC building, ready to go, ready to stack on that uh, 
on that big SLS rocket. So, you know, that that's going to be huge, putting that all together and seeing the first flight of that absolutely large uh, space launch system with the deep spacecraft Orion on it uh, that's going to take us back to the moon. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and there's still more commercial activity that's going on. Uh, we continue to draw folks that want to be part of this as we uh, as we continue to support commercial operations. So I, I, I think our future is extremely bright and it, it just it just continues to grow and, and more builds on it. We've been speaking with Bob Cabana. He's the director of the Kennedy Space Center here in Florida. Bob, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Brendan. Still to come, observing our universe using a giant radio telescope. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. A giant radio dish in Puerto Rico is observing our universe. The Arecibo Observatory is a radio telescope unlocking all sorts of secrets in the cosmos and our own atmosphere. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, UCF scientists Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell explain what radio astronomy is and how Arecibo is helping scientists see deeper into our universe. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. A radio telescope <laughs> measures radio waves or detects radio waves, and radio waves are just very, very long wavelengths of light. So we're used to our optical telescopes that uh, collect large amounts of the light that our eyes can see, and by collecting those large amounts of light enables us to see very faint and very uh, small things, or apparently small things, distant things in the sky. But there are a lot of processes in the universe that emit radio waves. And so it's in some sense like a radio antenna, but it is collecting radio waves from astronomical sources. And uh, we get a lot of information about what those objects are that are emitting those radio waves. There, there yeah. are some radio telescopes such as Arecibo that are active in that they can transmit radio waves and bounce them off a thing, and then we can look at the echo that comes back. So it's sort of like you're shining your own flashlight at the object, and that provides a lot of additional information because you know precisely what sort of light you've you shown on that object. You can learn a lot more from the reflection. Yeah, and radio waves, right, are sort of in wavelengths of typically centimeters to meters in length. Um sort of generally centimeter size millimeters um, it's centimeters it's that kind of thing so it's a, it's actually a pretty broad uh wavelength range um when we speak of of like how how many orders of magnitude it covers i guess right like when we think about visible light or things like that it's a very narrow sort of range and our eyes can collect visible light photons because visible light uh wavelengths are very very short right so um, but then radio wavelengths are very, very long. So you actually need bigger um, telescopes to collect those radio waves. Um, and so you do that by either having one really large dish like Arecibo, or you can do it with uh, what's called interferometry, where you use a bunch of smaller dishes in, in different places, but that sort of talk to each other and collect the light. Uh, and then you put that light together to uh, form the picture that you're trying to put together. What kind of uh, phenomenon does this capture? What, what can we see with a, a radio telescope? Yeah, so not every, you know, astronomical phenomenon produces a lot of radio waves, but some do produce them quite copiously. Uh, uh, Josh mentioned that, that uh, things like Arecibo are active observatories. So uh, a thing doesn't even have to be emitting radio waves. You can bounce radio waves, radar off of the things to see uh, nearby asteroids and things like that. But then there are also, like I said, plenty of astronomical things. Like uh, one of the things that Arecibo studies in depth are pulsars. Pulsars are 
the dead husks of large stars that are uh, throwing out huge amounts of light in a lot of different wavelengths, but in radio especially, uh, and they blink on and off, which is why they're called pulsars. And uh, that's one thing that we study with Arecibo, as well as uh, lots of other stuff in the uh, in the nearer environment in our solar system. Yeah, so, so like Jupiter produces signals in the radio wavelengths uh, when it that has to do with like its magnetic field and its rotation. Um, so we can measure that with radio waves and a lot of other sort of astronomical phenomena that we can look at as well. And you can also, a lot of what Arecibo does actually is look at the ionosphere. So um, the actual the atmosphere of the earth, the upper, upper layers are sort of charged particles. Um, and so you can get radio waves produced from interactions in the ionosphere of the earth. And they can use both passive and active observation techniques for, for that here on earth. So not only is it looking at stuff that's, you know, very far away, it can also make these really interesting observations of the Earth's atmosphere, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of the really cool stuff it does is look at ionospheric effects, and a lot of that is Sun-Earth interactions. Um, a lot of it's trying to understand what the structure of the ionosphere is, looks like, um, how it changes day to day. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting atmospheric science, basically, that we can do with Arecibo. Now, Arecibo is also, it's huge. What's the advantage of having such a, a large piece of hardware uh, for a radio telescope? Bigger is well, better. Yeah, like like Eddie said, you know, if you're if you're looking at wavelengths that are long, it turns out that you need big telescopes. And so, if you just you know something like the Hubble Space Telescope is two and a half meters across. Uh, the biggest optical telescopes in the world are ten meters or so across. I mean, their 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 mirrors are about that diameter. That's just not big enough to be able to see with any resolution, any clarity, things in radio light. So you need stuff that's much bigger. So Arecibo, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. It's something like 305 meters across uh, in diameter. I mean, it's huge. It's like takes up that little mini valley in in uh, in Puerto Rico. For most of my my uh, professional career, it's been the largest telescope on the planet. It is no longer that. The Chinese did build a larger 500 meter diameter telescope that's also a radio telescope. But you have to have big, which is a kind of disadvantage to radio astronomy. Is it has to be big. And even the ones that Addy mentioned, you can build smaller, numerous smaller ones to do the same thing. But even those smaller ones are still pretty big, like 30, 40 meters across. They're all huge. There are some disadvantages. There are some advantages as well. Like you can see during the day, you can do observations. And when it's cloudy, you can do observations because radio travels through that. And you don't have to have quite the same sort of crystal, smooth, perfect mirror because the wavelengths that you're looking at are millimeters, centimeters, tens of centimeters. So you're you know, the, the surface of your so-called mirror, the collector, that radio dish, is typically pretty rushed for a radio telescope, whereas for optical telescopes, it has to be this very exquisitely polished, smooth surface. It has to be smooth on the scale of the wavelength of light that you're looking at, which for radio telescopes is no big deal. So there, uh, the, the other advantage of it is that you can measure very, very precisely the wavelength of radio light that you're getting which makes what uh, Addy was referring to, the interferometry and combining signals from multiple telescopes a lot easier than it is with optical telescopes. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, Addy Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Are We There? It is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners, and you can help this show and the local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.